Now, I wonder if you've ever had one of those slightly embarrassing experiences, but I think really commonplace. Uh, for example, if you wear glasses or if you were wearing sunglasses, when you're convinced you've lost them and you're searching around for them and you get increasingly more agitated, and then eventually you say to someone around you, have you seen my glasses? And they say, they're right on your face, right there in front of you. I'm sure it's not just me who's had that with sunglasses. Or you're looking for your wallet and it's there in your pocket, but you, you completely forget about it. And you're searching for it everywhere and it's right there with you all the time. It's a common problem, and it really speaks in a more profound way to the way that something can be right in front of our very eyes, and yet we can miss it despite how obvious it is to everybody else around us and despite the fact that we should see it very clearly. Now, that's really exactly what is going on here in this passage. In Mark chapter 8, we see Jesus obviously reveal his identity, but the very people who should see it and who should grasp it just can't see it. It's as though it's almost too obvious they miss what is right in front of their very eyes. Now, I think this is very important for us to grasp, particularly in the context we're in here in 21st century London, because up until a generation ago, for the vast majority of, you know, kind of, well, not even so recent history, say the last 1,600 years, in the West, there was an overwhelming consensus about who Jesus Christ is. Anybody and everybody pretty much would say that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He was God in human form. That's up until about a generation ago. And then in the post-Second World War period here in the UK and increasingly in the US as it lags behind a little bit on this trend, there has been a big shift in that cultural consensus. So here in the UK, there was a survey done in 1993 that showed at that point only 46% of people would say Jesus was divine or God in human form. A very similar survey was then done in 2016, and that number had gone from 46% to 22%. And you can pretty much trace a line of the decline, and it would still be lower today. And one of the questions we have to grapple with, particularly with our vision here at Inspire, to be a church not for people who necessarily go to church, but to inspire London with this good news of Jesus is, what causes that? Why is it that some people see and other people don't see? I mean, on a wonderful daylight today when we baptized Nicola, I wonder if you're thinking, like, why is it? What happened in her life, you know, that meant that she one day started to see uh, when she hadn't seen beforehand? And this passage gets right to the heart of it. So let's look at this passage, and let's ask three questions as we do. Firstly, we're going to ask, why don't people recognize who Jesus is? So why don't sometimes people recognize who Jesus is? Then we're going to ask, who is Jesus and finally, we're going to ask the important question, how can we see? Um, let me just say a bit about the way that this passage works. Um, it works from out to in, so the outer parts of the verses we'll look at first, and then we'll go in one section, then we'll finally end up on the important bit with the healing of the blind man in verses 22 to 26. So we're going to start on the outer bits first of all. Let's ask that question, uh, why don't we, why don't we recognize Jesus? Look down with me at verse 11. So we pick up our passage with the Pharisees in verse 11 on page 1011, coming and beginning to question Jesus. And this is actually a pretty familiar format. Um, Mark likes to repeat things. Mark is writing his testimony on the back of uh, Peter's eyewitness account. And Peter's one of these guys who kind of needs things repeated to him if you read the Gospels. And so um, we get in, uh, in um, earlier on in Mark's Gospel, the feeding of the 5,000, and then after the feeding of the 5,000, Pharisees come to question Jesus. We've just had the feeding of the 4,000, so the same miracle done with the non-Jewish Gentile area. And similarly, verse 11, the Pharisees come and begin to question Jesus. Now, think about this for a moment. The Pharisees should be 
the group of people alongside the disciples who would get who Jesus is. I mean, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. We mustn't think of them in kind of pantomime baddies of the New Testament, um, you know, kind of terms. That's not sufficiently nuanced. They were the religiously devout people. They were the ones waiting for the arrival of God's King Messiah. They were completely conversant, probably almost certainly knew the whole of the Old Testament off by heart. They were living lives of moral and religious purity to hasten the arriving of God's King and God's kingdom. They were the ones looking for the signs. They were the ones waiting. They were the ones in church every Saturday um, back then. And yet they don't see who Jesus is. Uh, Look at how they respond. Verse 11, they came to question him. Now, you'll know there's a world of difference between coming to ask questions with an open mind and coming to question someone. They're coming to question him and to test him, verse 11. And Jesus sighed deeply, verse 12, and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Now, you might be thinking, what's the problem? They're asking for a sign. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, give them a sign. But the point is, is that Jesus has already given them ample evidence. Chapter 2, he heals a paralyzed man in front of them all whilst claiming to be the one who can forgive sins. And they're so outraged by it that they want to reject him and stone him for blasphemy. They don't recognize his divinity. Chapter 3, they actually set up a test for him in a synagogue, believing that people shouldn't do any activity on a Saturday, on the Sabbath day then. And so they set up a test when there's a person who needs healing there, seeing what will Jesus do. And Jesus heals the man in front of them all. And again, they get so irate about it that they want to reject him. So they've seen plenty of evidence. Now, this is really significant, isn't it? Because we often think our problem is we weren't there. Oh, if only we were there, then we'd believe. But the Pharisees were there. In fact, they were rejecting Jesus, not because they didn't have evidence, but precisely because the evidence that he had given of healing a paralyzed man didn't fit with their idea about what the Messiah should do. So they didn't deny the miracles. The miracles were obvious for all to see. There's no question. Notice that if you're looking in for the first time. They more questioned how it was he could even do them, trying to attribute it to the devil or something. Now, why don't the Pharisees believe? If they're looking for the Messiah, if the evidence is obvious in front of them, why don't they believe? Well, the key is in verse 11. The whole approach to Jesus is just so telling, isn't it? They come in pride to question him. Can I say, look, we are a church that welcomes questions. By God's grace, I came to faith when I wasn't a Christian at age 22 through asking a lot of questions. And I'm grateful I had very patient friends who gave me the forum. But you know there is a big difference between coming with an open, curious spirit to ask your questions and coming to question someone. So often our questions are just a mask for us in pride, thinking that we want to express our disbelief and you better strap in whilst I give you my 20 reasons. That is a position of pride. It's not a position of genuine inquiry. All that will do is confirm you in your biases. And real evidence won't contradict you because you won't let it contradict you. Coming in pride to question Jesus, to test Jesus, putting God in the dock and elevating yourself in the judge's seat, don't think that God will accept that dynamic that merely confirms you in your blindness. That's what the Pharisees are doing. And I wonder if many people struggle to see who Jesus really is because they're not dealing with the arrogance and the pride in their own heart, thinking they've got all the answers. Oh, I already know. I mean, ultimately, I I watched some Channel 4 documentary, and it must be accurate because it's Channel 4, right? (laughs) And then, you know, so I already made up my minds about Jesus. Have you read the New Testament for yourself? 
Have you treated it like an adult book? Have you actually looked into it? Sometimes lowering yourself and coming from a position of curiosity opens yourself up to conclusions you might not have thought. But questions are fine. they just got to come from the right position. The disciples, um, next. So the Pharisees, they come from a position of pride. But the disciples, now you think, okay, so the Pharisees don't get it, but surely the disciples. And after all, as we read in our passage, don't we see Jesus and don't we see Peter on the back of Jesus' question actually get it? Verse 29, Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And verse 29, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Bingo, triple Yahtzee, you've got it. Shut the book, save the expensive papyrus, eight chapters in, it's all done. Except he doesn't get it. Because then in verse uh, 32, after Jesus speaks plainly about this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And then Jesus suddenly turns and says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And Peter is supposed to be a kind of spokesperson for the disciples. In other words, the disciples at this point, they don't get Jesus' identity either. Why not? Well, that phrase that Jesus says in verse 33 is so telling. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What does he mean by that? Peter has just rebuked him. That's told him off for him saying that he's got to go to the cross and die because that didn't fit with Peter's idea of who the Messiah should be. He wanted a Messiah who would deal with the pressing human issues, namely the occupation of Jerusalem and the whole surrounding area by Rome. He wanted a Messiah who would come in military conquest. So one who's going to die, that's kind of negative thinking, Jesus. It's as though Peter wants to snap him out of it. Wake up, wake up, we need a military Messiah. That's not the type of Messiah Jesus is. But it's also noticeable if you flick back earlier on to verse 14, when we get this whole incident in the boat, and the disciples, it says in verse 14, had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf. Jesus uses this to springboard into teaching them something, to warn them about the pride of the Pharisees. He used the metaphor of yeast. Be careful, Jesus warned them, verse 15. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And the disciples don't get it at all. They start arguing about whether or not they have enough bread for dinner. Now, that's ironic on two levels. One, Jesus has just shown that he can miraculously feed 4,000 people, so it's hardly as though them lacking bread for dinner is an issue, right? But the second issue is that they are arguing about it, and they're completely missing what Jesus is trying to tell them. Now, why is this? The disciples are different to the Pharisees. They're not proud in the same way. They're not testing Jesus in the same way. But in some ways, they end up being just as blind. Why? Well, because, as Jesus says, you've got human concerns in mind. It's as though they're so blinded by the immediate, by the urgent, by things of this world, they don't see what's right in front of them. Look, we have the phrase, don't we? You can't see the wood for the trees. In other words, you could be standing in the midst of the wood, and all of a sudden, you just can't see where you are because it's right there in front of you. Uh, The other day, I was driving along, and I came to a junction. Fortunately, I'd slowed right down, and a guy wandered straight out into the junction just in front of me on his mobile phone. And he didn't notice me at all. I was kind of waiting there in my car. So I gave a little you know, beep, beep on my horn just to say, wake up. I didn't want to do it too aggro, because in London, you're likely to get a volley of, um, you know, affirmations back to you after you do that. And uh, he kind of looked up from his phone and looked, and then he looked down, and it was like, he was so surprised he was not on the pavement anymore, and he was so surprised he was standing in the middle of the road anymore. Now, how did that happen? Because he was so distracted by his phone. I mean, we are an age of distraction, aren't we? Probably concerned by some important text or email or how many likes his recent 
you know, Facebook post had or something like that, that he missed the fact that he was on a road. Well, isn't that some way a metaphor for all of us? We miss the important things in life because we're dealing with the six inches in front of our face. Bread for the disciples, where's my next meal going to come from? For some of us, we're worried about money, whether we'll have enough to make the month go by. Some of us, we're worried about our job or the work meeting coming up or, you know, a relationship and some problem with someone. And very often when it comes to engaging with Jesus, these press in on us so that we miss who he is. In fact, for those of us who follow Jesus, when you audit your prayers, so often aren't your prayers obsessed with the here and the now, and you miss the big picture of what God is doing in your life? We can be distracted. And in fact, I think it's one of the tempter's great ploys. In um, the C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, where you have, rather unusually, but if you know the book, you'll know how brilliantly it works, a tempter talking to a younger tempter, a kind of demon of how you distract the patient, the Christian. He says this about distraction. He says, you will say that these are very small sins, distraction, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that really matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. That's the devil's name for Jesus. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the great nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I mean, how easy it is for us to be distracted, right? Get caught up in the here and now, rushing about, get my to-do list done, and we, we wake up a you know, in the morning and we jump into things, we check BBC News or BBC Sport or Facebook feed or anything, we rush into the day, we try to get our to-do list done and we get to lunchtime, we haven't even prayed and we're wondering why the day's going badly. <laughs> or many of us, you know, you're asked, do you want to look into Jesus Christ and you've never thought about it and you say, yeah, yeah, fine, just let me clear my work schedule first, it's a bit busy at the moment or a couple of relational issues I need to sort out, let me deal with that first. In other words, we delay. What a great tactic that is, delay Distraction is the problem with the disciples, and it ultimately stops them from seeing who Jesus is. Let's think secondly, and much more briefly, who is Jesus then? Well, as we come to the middle uh, verses, not quite the very heart of it, Mark wants us to be in no doubt about who Jesus is. And so look down with me at verse 17. Jesus asks them some questions of chapter 8 to get them thinking. Why are you talking about bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Remember what? Remember all the miracles. Remember the feeding of the 4,000. Remember the feeding of 5,000. And then something more. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. When I broke the seven loaves for 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Now, a couple of things going on here. He's reminding them of his miracles because that was a key miracle, the feeding miraculously in the desert. And it's amazing how Mark picks up on the place, the desert, echoes what we had in our reading from Exodus 16, where God miraculously fed his people in a desert with manna from heaven. And Jesus deliberately and very intentionally echoes that miracle to make the point, only God can do this. And I am therefore God. And then just to really nail it down for Jews, and we won't get the numerical references maybe, but there were 12 tribes of Israel, so the 12 baskets should 
um, help them to trigger about the fact that this is in fulfillment of Messiah who had come for the 12 tribes. And seven was the number of days with one day rest that God created the earth. So for Jews, seven was a number of completeness, a God-like number. So again, it spoke of Jesus' divinity. So all the markers, all the flashing lights of them for there to get it, but they don't get it. They don't get that Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. It's interesting. That's their first stumbling block they don't seem to get. And then we get later on the second stumbling block when Jesus, in verse 31, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. And at that point, Peter doesn't get it a second time. Two interesting parts, and I want you to notice the stumbling blocks. The first one, that Jesus is Lord, that he is God himself in human form. Many people struggle with that. The second one, that Jesus is Savior, that he came to suffer and die. These, can I put it to you, are the two great problems that people have with Jesus Christ. I mean, if I had a penny, you know, for all the times that someone has said to me, Jesus is a moral teacher, Jesus is a moral exemplar, Jesus is the one who gives me suggestions in my life, Jesus is one option among many, love that, great, love your book, the Bible, it's got some great passages in it, Sermon on the Mount, brilliant stuff. But Jesus as God, no, that's just overstated, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people kind of still go with the third-hand idea that the early Christians never believed that, and it was some kind of fourth or fifth century construction, despite the fact that history won't allow you to have that belief at all, because they were worshiping Jesus fully divine from immediately after his resurrection. And the early church was dying for it, so why would the church be persecuted for Jesus' divinity if they didn't believe it for 400 years? Makes no sense. But you know, Jesus, Lord, we struggle with that. Because if he's Lord, he has absolute authority over our lives. If he's just a moral teacher, he's got a few suggestions. Suggestions are great. You can take or leave them. A Lord, you have to obey him. He can demand everything of you. So we stumble with that. And then the second one, the one that Peter struggles with, the idea that he would be a suffering servant, that he has to die for you. Some people will get as far as saying, yeah, okay, I'll accept Jesus' authority as Lord. But then when it comes to the idea of him having to die for you, they say, no, that's just an affront to my pride. If anyone's going to atone for me, I'll atone for me, I'll do it. And works-based religion kicks off. And so these are two of the great stumbling blocks. I wonder, as the Holy Spirit ministers now, which one is your difficulty? And just because you've been walking with Christ for a number of years, don't think that like a wonky shopping trolley, you won't pull one way or the other. Some of us really grapple with Jesus' authority. Other of us really grapple with the idea that Jesus has to die for us. I wonder which one you struggle with. You know, these are the two key things. And did you notice when Nicola affirmed her faith in Christ, what it said? Do you accept Jesus Christ as Lord? I accept him. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? I accept him. Because they're foundational. Put it this way, if you don't get Jesus as all of those things, Lord and Savior, you don't get Jesus at all. I'm going to say that strongly because it really is true. If you don't get Jesus as all, Lord and Savior, you really don't have Jesus at all. You can't pick and choose. He's both of those things. And that's why he rebukes Peter in the strongest possible terms. Well, lastly, and as we come into land, let's look at how we can see. And this brings us to the miracle um, right in the heart of it, verses 22 to 26. Look down with me at verse 22. The disciples came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? 
He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Uh, It's rather amusing when you read some of the more liberal commentators on this. They basically try to speak as though Jesus was kind of having an, an off day like he'd you know, had one too few Weetabix at breakfast, and therefore he's like, ah, oh, just can't get the job done in the first round. Let's have a second, you know, kind of bite of the apple. I mean, it's just ludicrous to think that. This is Jesus. In chapter 4, a storm that has grown fishermen terrified for their lives, he speaks to it and he rebukes it like a naughty child, and instantly it's all calm. It doesn't take a while to calm down. The wind of the waves abate, and there's an eerie calm that comes over the sea. This is Jesus who raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. This is Jesus who can reconstitute the limbs of the paralytic just by saying, get up, take your mat, and walk. Jesus does not have an off day. Jesus does this deliberately, and Mark constructs the material with this and the middle of it to make the point about the disciples seeing but not seeing. Just as Peter says, you are the Messiah, but doesn't really get it, so notice this man is healed in one stage, but doesn't really see clearly. And the point that is being made by Jesus and by Mark's construction of the material as he recounts it to us is this. First and foremost, that quite often we see partially, and we need to be wary, as I was saying before, about trying to accept Jesus as one of those and not both of those, Lord and Savior. But secondly, We need to grasp this. To see Jesus has to do a miracle in your life. I mean, wonder, do you really get that? You know, dealing with distraction, dealing with your pride, those are things you can attend to. But ultimately, no one believes because of something in them. Have you ever asked the question, if you're a believer here today, why is it I believe but my friends and my family whom I love very much and I long to believe don't believe? Well, be liberated. There's nothing in you. It's not that you're more insightful or you have a particular spiritual gift in and of yourself, or it's not that you figured it out or worked hard at it. It's nothing to do with you. The point is Jesus has done a miracle in your life. He has opened your eyes, just as he opened this man's eyes. Wouldn't it be ludicrous if this man went away, skipping and saying, I've made myself see? (laughs) He hasn't at all. That's why no Christian who's authentic prays, thank you, Jesus. Sorry, prays, thank you, Jesus, for my ability to see myself. It's not down to me. You never thank yourself for it. It's down to Jesus. And ultimately, if we don't see clearly, we have to pray. But also notice the way this man approaches Jesus and see the difference here with the Pharisees. As so often, someone with great need comes in great humility. They came to Bethsaida, verse 22, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. The Pharisees come haughty of spirit, elevating themselves, looking down their noses at Jesus. This man comes kneeling in the dust, saying, Lord, help me to see. He's humble. I can say this with absolutely certain, absolute certainty because Scripture says it. A humble and contrite heart, the Lord will never turn away. If you want to see, whether you just can't quite see, you know, for the first time, or whether you're a Christian, you're just struggling to see it clearly, if you want to see... If you humbly cry out to God and say, Lord, I want to see, make me see, he'll always answer that prayer. He's never not answered that prayer. Throughout the whole of salvation history, he's always responded to people who are humble. He always will do throughout the New Testament. It's proud people he turns away. Humble people he welcomes in. Friend, if you will humble yourself, 
If you will cry out to him, he will open your eyes. Let me apply this in two ways as I close. First of all, for ourselves. Do you want to see? I don't know if you don't see at all or if you're a Christian who's just grappling and God doesn't seem very clear to you right now. Humble yourself. Cry out. You say, how do I know he'll answer? How do you know? (laughs) Did he not give you his only son? Did Jesus not get plunged into darkness onto the cross so that you might come into the light? Did he not get shut out on the cross so that you might be welcomed in? Did he not die so that you might have life? Do you doubt he will give you sight if he gave that for you? Oh, my friend, he loves you more than you'll ever know. But get over your pride, humble yourself, and cry out to him. He will open your eyes. And as we look to this city with our vision to inspire London, I mean, a bold aim, isn't it? We must not think that it will be down to great organization or processes or good speakers or whatever else. Ultimately, only the Lord can open blind eyes. You know, it's very interesting. Over the past 20 or 30 years, there has been one group of churches that have been largely growing at an amazing rate and have been holding back the tide, if you like, of increasing unbelief in London. Do you know who they are? Largely the black Pentecostal churches. And I was speaking with a pastor from one of those churches a few weeks back, and I asked him what he thought the difference was. And he said, look, most of us have come from Africa, first or second year immigration, uh, generation immigrants. And he says, in Africa, when we need something, we don't have an NHS. We don't have social services. So if we're ill, what do we do? We pray. If we have no money, we pray. If we don't have a job, we pray. He says, we know we have nothing but prayer. He says, I wonder if in the West, the problem is you have so many things you forget how to pray. Friends, are we going to be a proud church which won't see much fruit, or are we going to humble ourselves? We say the prayer gathering is the most important gathering of the month because we can really pray. And as we pray, let's pray with faith. Lord, open the eyes of the blind. You did it in my life. Do it in the lives of other people around me. Let's pray. The Lord has not lost his power, but have we lost our faith? Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage Thank you for that reality, Lord, that we need our eyes opened to the truth of the gospel. Forgive us our pride. Forgive us our distraction. Forgive us our lack of faith. Help us to come in humility, boldly to approach your throne. Shine into our light, we pray, Lord God, that we might have our eyes opened. We might see who Jesus is. We ask it for his namesake. Amen.